Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal. Dan Delmar and Mike Newton of FL with you today. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. And we roll on with season number 13, um, kind of a semi-returning champion this week. Uh, we've never spoken with Inder Betty, um, but we did speak with his ex-partner of, uh, of Madden Nat, and Inder has a totally new company now. It's called 457 Anew. Um, again, taking not only just uh, some types of recycled products and fibers to make fashion, uh, handbags, clothing, etc., but taking all kinds of different materials, recycling them, upcycling them, really interesting business. It is, and it's kind of fascinating. I guess you could call Inder a serial entrepreneur. I mean, this is the second business that he has founded, uh, I think, with, uh, you know, again, with with a very different approach to the way, you know, a lot of people look at it from a capitalist environment. This is definitely a sustainable uh, environment. And, you know, uh, many people talk about how we drive forward business and fashion looks for uh, the goods that we are, you know, going to use to create that fashion. And, and I think somebody like Inder and some of the new businesses are almost working in the reverse here's what's available and what can we work from there so we'll we'll get a feel from him on that a little bit later on in, in the show first does some news and notes and we'll talk about uh remote work in a little while um but first automation and digitization and i got my hands mike um uh, from a secret source on a on an internal fl memo that you sent about digitization and uh, and how to implement it within your own organization. So I'm wondering what what are your experiences? What are the different levels of digitization? You know, there's email, there's using AI a little bit here and there, and then there's transforming your business with with new digital tools. There's different levels. So where are you guys at right now in your process? I would love to say that we were implementing. I think we're still kind of a little archaic in the sense that most of what we have done in this process, I would I would describe as being automation. Uh, and I would say that a large part of maybe not the big four firms, but a lot of the the accounting and, and professional firms uh, are creating automation to eventually go to digitization. But you don't really get to that digitization process until ultimately you're going to change the philosophy, and and it it requires a paradigm. Change. Shift. And we all know that, especially when it comes to accountants, uh, change is not something that's high on the uh, on the level of, of excitement. Um, and, you know, be, being able to take data that's coming in and turn it into how to determine how to use it for marketing purposes, for filing purposes, for, you know, anything that that, that is not... You know, it's almost beyond the data itself and, and creating something new with it is part of the uh, the digital transformation area. And, and, and really, I think most uh, professional organizations have really just automated the processes. But it's funny because if you have that conversation, you know, we, we like to think we're talking the talk and walking the walk. So you talk to people, they're going to say, oh, yeah, we're in that digital transformation stage. So I think if you really drill down and look at what you know, most of us are calling uh, data transformation. Really, what we're doing is automation, and, and and we're really at that infancy stage of of what to do. It's not about the data that's coming in; it's what we're using the data for. And and, and I think that's where the transformation comes in. But it, it, it's a massive paradigm shift that needs to be required. You need to be thinking from the beginning: what is it that I am going to do with this data, other than you know uploading so that I can create financial financial statement information with it? Am I going to create uh, new products for clients? Am I going to new look at different marketing environments, like how am I going to use, as you referred to the AI component to it, and how am I going to find something that makes it just beyond automation? I, I've really incorporated a lot of tech tools in recent years. Um, some of them uh, in, in the creative business and writing involve um, dictation, um, you know, a, a lot of voice to text applications that save me 
literal hours a week. And so I think in my experience, the key, Mike, is making sure that, that you're actually empowering humans with what you're doing. Yeah, what it does, I think, is it takes it, it requires a lot of people to raise the level of their understanding and, and their knowledge of information. And, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, if you just go to automation, all you're really doing is replacing, uh, you know, the, the number of touches or the human involvement at a low level. But if you're really using this properly, you're, you're saving time, you're creating efficiencies, you're getting a different output. And a lot of people don't see how, you know, putting the same information into a data transformation process can create a different output. But again, it, it, it's what you do with it. It's And, you know, the reality is it's not going to be most of us in our 50s and 60s that are going to be the users and, and, and the, the champions of this process. You have to be able to understand what it is. And it's going to require that a lot of firms start to look at people outside of the CPA uh, mindset and start looking at more technically inclined individuals, more IT people, more math people. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, this becomes a becomes a, a math game. This on um, employee behavior from Harvard Business Review. Our brains were not built for this much uncertainty. Um, how sort of from an evolutionary perspective, we weren't really ready for the pandemic and all this craziness. No, I'm going to actually, I, 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 we exchanged this, this article and I'm just going to read you a quick paragraph because I thought it was stunningly accurate to what most of us have lived. It says, for most of human history, we have been hunters gatherers, living in groups or individually as established roles and lives. While sometimes dangerous, life was largely predictable. The brain evolved to a remarkably good point at recognizing patterns and building habits, turning very complex sets of behaviors into something we can do on autopilot. Uh, and for those of you that have ever you know, driven home and found yourself in your driveway going, how did I get here? Uh, and, you know, that, that, that's what we're talking about. And we are a people that are used to, as much as we like to talk about change, as much as we, our brains have not been wired to live through the massive change that COVID has created in philosophical work environments, travel. I mean, all of those things we just kept taking for granted as, as history have now been upended. And a lot of the mental, uh, you know, anguish, if you will, that's coming from this is the fact that a lot of it is unpredictable. I mean, we are given we're good at, at, at habits. We're good at recognizing patterns. We're good at that thing. That is who we are. The brain is almost evolved to uncertainty averse at, at the end of the day. And, you know, with that fight, freeze or flight environment uh, has been thrown, has been thrust into our face based on all this uncertainty we face. Lastly, and this is very interesting, a huge Microsoft study on remote work, 60,000 employees studied. And what the, the authors conclude uh, and what Microsoft CEO is saying, uh, Satya Nadella, is that uh, hybrid work, great for the short term, but for long term collaboration, it's a problem. You know, I'm glad it's finally been put in print because this is what we've been experiencing in the last little while. I mean, the, the work from home remote environment uh, has been really good for task oriented type jobs. Uh, anything involving innovation, creativity, uh, you know, the brainstorming is very difficult to do, first of all, sitting on the other end of a camera. Uh, and second of all, in a very programmed environment. OK, we're going to talk at two o'clock this afternoon and I want you to come up with four ideas, you know, for where we're taking this business. It, it, 
instantaneous. It, a lot of that has happened walking the halls in our businesses. It's been in the lunchroom. It's been in a water cooler conversation where things come out of this to eventually evolve into the next stage. Well, right now, everything we do is programmed. Everything, every, every conversation we have is I'm calling you at 10 o'clock on Zoom or I'm calling you on Teams or there is no instantaneous uh, innovation, adrenaline rush with comes with it. We become robotic in a lot of what we're doing. So robotic works nicely on task oriented, short term environments, and it is painfully, uh, treacherously dangerous on a long term innovation component. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at some point, um, there's that in person human dynamic. Um, the freedom of ideas, the freedom to express yourself in a social situation that will produce good ideas. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to sit in a room and stare at each other without an idea. It's another thing to sit on a screen and stare at each other without an idea and just go, I guess this meeting's done. Let's move on to something else. And, you know, we need to, I, I, you know, recognize that the whole COVID environment and, and, and all the political side and all the science side are, are inhibiting where we're going. But we have to look at, at finding ways to bring creativity back up again. And, you know, our business is, is no different. People are doing what they're doing. They're doing a good job of what they're doing. But I think asking them to step outside and start to brainstorm together has is, is become painful. And, and I'm afraid that long-term, certainly the young uh, workforce uh, needs to learn and be mentored on how to think in a group and how to brainstorm and how to say, no, I don't agree with this, but how about that? And have this interaction as opposed to being preached to and told that this is this is where we're going. And, and unfortunately, I think the big losers right now are, are the young uh, new workforce entrants who are, are, are you know, we, we've hired people we haven't even seen yet, and it's been 17 months. So, you know, that cannot be good for somebody's mentoring process. And it's time to introduce our guest, uh, a returning champion of sorts. We spoke to his former business partner uh, five years ago from Matt and Nat. And today, Inder Bedi is the founder of a new company, a new clothing company called 457 Anew. Inder Bedi, welcome to today's entrepreneur. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Tell us first uh, about your business. What is uh, what is Anew? <laughs> Four, five, seven. Anew is Anew. Um, the idea was really to look at sustainability and, of course, clean design with a new lens. Having had the blessing of time, being able to step back from my last business, I was able to really um, just take a step back and look at fashion and sustainability and have the time to research and develop what I felt would be where fashion needs to be go within where fashion needs to be going within the realm of sustainability over the next X number of years and hopefully decades. So the idea really is to work with upcycled materials, materials that come from landfill, ocean waste. Um, at the minimum, I would love to, we are, goal is to create pieces that have positive impact and ideally at the maximum end of that spectrum we want to create pieces that actually clean up our planet and our environment so using everything from retired air canada seats uh, seat belt webbing that's sourced from the aviation and the automotive industries and then working with fabrics uh, such as Econil, which is a luxurious nylon from italy that's made from fishnets carpet fiber waste it could be infinitely regenerated um, so yeah, that's the whole, uh, the whole goal of 457 and you. Maybe give us a little bit of an insight into, I guess, the manufacturing process and, and, and how you go about doing what you do. Are you outsourcing, uh, certain steps? I mean, I, I, listening to you just 
you know, for two minutes there, talk about what you're doing. Uh, There's just so many pieces to come out of that. I mean, you're talking about taking recycled materials. You're talking about uh, repurposing them. Uh, You're talking about turning them into uh, items. You're talking about fashion. I mean, there's so many different areas here. Uh, Are you guys doing all of this yourself? Are you outsourcing the process? Give us a little bit of an insight of how, how the process works. Sure, sure. Everything is locally made in Canada. Um, That's our outerwear, knits, and our bags. And we try to source all the materials actually within North America. So for the knits, the uh, cotton comes from the US. It's a heavyweight cotton that gets softer with every use, sustainably grown. For the um, bags, we use a vegan leather called Deserto, which is made from organic cactus leaves in Mexico. It's considered one of the most sustainable plant-based leathers in the world. The production process itself, we work with local tailors, artists, makers, everything is done in small batches. The idea of keeping all the production in Canada was to be close to the process, just to really be there from A to Z. And of course, to ensure uh, fair labor, um, fair and equitable labor standards um, that we can ensure by fueling our economy and keeping production locally in our own backyard. So we, we do work with different partners when it comes to production, especially since we cover different categories, uh, three main categories. We, we have a, um, a partner in place for each one of those categories. So when you're talking about using vegan leather, you're talking about using certain materials that a lot of people really aren't familiar with in, in, the, in the manufacturing process. Is fashion driving what you're using or is what you're using driving the fashion? That's a great question. Is fashion driving what we're using? is what we're using driving fashion like is, is is the ultimate goal the fashion using sustainable materials or is your mindset saying hey here's the here's the sustainable component of what we're using now what can we make with these things along the way or is it a bit of both i would say it's a bit of both um absolutely where our process i would say is different from a lot of brands in the marketplace right now is that typically Brands will have an idea of what their collection is going to look like for the upcoming season, the upcoming year, and then go out and source materials that tie into those, that aesthetic versus we're looking at what's available in terms of upcycle materials, landfill materials, uh, materials that are made from ocean waste, plant-based leathers, and then seeing how can we work designs around the material. Um, What's super interesting is that I've never seen a time where there's been such an interest in creating uh, materials from landfill and waste, uh, plant-based vegan leathers, everything from mushrooms to cactus leaves to apples. It's uh, th- That's been very interesting in terms of launching a fashion brand at this time and taking the sustainability to a different level. We're obviously, we're obviously still a startup brand, so we don't have the means to push industry to create the type of materials we would like to see in the future. Um, But it is exciting in the sense that you see the direction, there's a momentum going towards working more and more with uh, materials that come from waste or materials that uh, have minimum impact on the planet, either because they're sourced locally or because they're way they're made, grown. And of course, the materials that go into making those materials, such as um, cactus leaves. And uh, Inder, uh, you are the founder of Madanat. We had your former business partner, Manny, on the program uh, about five years ago. And similar there, uh, we had a social mission with uh, how you're sourcing your materials 
with Matt and Nat. Um, tell me about, about that company, um, uh, how the mission was important then and uh, why you're taking it to the next level here. Sure. Um, Matt and Nat is actually based on a, uh, a business plan I wrote at Concordia University. I uh, took a course called entrepreneurship, which I actually didn't want to take. I had no interest in taking it. I needed to take it to, uh, to get the credits and complete my degree. Uh, so being a vegetarian at the time, I based uh, my um, business plan on a make-believe vegan business that would create bags and jackets. I had to go to two banks to get funding. I got no funding. Both banks refused the make-believe business. Um, but after uh, leaving Concordia, I put aside my uh, aspirations to go to law school and thought that there's something here. And that's how Matt and I was born. So for the first seven years, we actually did all the production locally in Canada and brought in uh, at the time what was available in terms of vegan leathers from both Spain and Italy, all the sourcing in terms of hardware, um, all the other input materials, a lot of it done was done locally in North America. Later on, the production was shifted overseas. Um, so I would say four, five, seven and you is really, I guess, the next level in, level in my career in terms of, in one ways, in some ways I'm going back in terms of going back to local production, but at the same time, it's forward thinking in the sense that what we were speaking about before the types of materials that are available um, that were never available, let's say 20 years ago. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's always this back and forth kind of journey. At the same time, I like to joke that 457 New was born in the scrapyards of Quebec because that's one of the places where I initially started looking for materials, whether it was um, seatbelt webbing from uh, automotive, aviation, uh, and then um, being lucky enough to find these retired Air Canada seats and doing a collection of backpacks and duffel bags out of that. So that's, uh, I guess, the the journey or the <laughs> yeah so, so i would say you you pretty much answered that question this is a sustainability company that then thinks about the fashion and and i kind of like it because i think that that approach is very different uh you're looking at what's available and how you can make something with what's available where most people kind of backfill i think uh uh, the the materials once they know what their designs are going to be so it's a it's a very interesting model and, and I think that you know one of the things and, and Dan this is this has kind of been you know a little bit of the theme I guess over the last year on the show has been a lot of sustainability uh, in uh, pr uh, projects that, that we've undertaken and and I think that uh, we're going to continue to see you know where this goes I mean how how do you think that COVID and uh, the consciousness of, of sustainability is, is improved uh, or provided a different opportunity for you? One of the biggest things I, I saw with um, COVID was that uh, in terms of shifting values, which ties in very much to the tech, the community we're building with 457 New, people want to get back to local production. They want to get back to supporting local. They want to get back to looking at experiences, purchases uh, in a deeper way, maybe in a way that's, I like to say, everlasting, longer lasting. And part of sustainability also does come into design in the sense that you're designing pieces that also from an aesthetic point of view will outlast a season or a trend um, or a given movement at any time. So minimalism, um, slow fashion are big parts of what we do and 
the the beauty and the product really comes from the details, really sweating every detail, um, looking at every aspect of the product, whether it's a jacket, a knit, or a bag. Our ethos is um, create clean. And it's, uh, you can look at it two ways. One is we're creating products that ideally clean up the planet. We also have a collaboration with Plastic Oceans where we do a give back of 1%. Uh, that goes towards cleaning up Canadian shorelines of plastic waste. So, so far this year, we've cleaned a little over 12,000 feet of Canadian shoreline in terms of um, plastic waste. And the other side of Create Clean is also, like I was saying, the, the aesthetic, the design. Um, how can we do things that contribute to a person's well-being? We, we were surrounded by utilitarian items that we have to use every day, whether it's furniture, um, outerwear, a bag that we use to carry goods. So how can we design them in a way that will be everlasting or evergreen? And at the same time, have a certain aesthetic that that is pleasing to our, our community. Um, you know, for example, seatbelts, people have been using seatbelts for fashion for decades and you gotta uh, put your hat out to them. It's, it's super interesting what they do. Want to take a different approach and just see how can we take this idea and do it in a way that feels maybe elevated, um, do it a little bit different than the way it's been looked at in the past. Uh, our guest, from the company 457, a new fashion brand here in Montreal, is Inder Bedi, the founder of the company. And uh, they take all kinds of recycled materials, plastics, um, he was saying, uh, Air, Air Canada seatbelts. And the thing, uh, Inder, that I find um, kind of interesting is that uh, you, you are sourcing multiple recycled materials. Um, a lot of people are just focusing on sort of fishing nets or something. Where are you finding all these stockpiles and do you have one coming up? Like what's the next big stockpile of, you know, random recycled material that you're going to incorporate into your, your business? Sure. I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for the next pile of <laughs> trash, <laughs> landfill, ocean waste, uh, whatever we can use. Um, there's certain items that are limited runs. For example, the Air Canada seats, we are able to make 157 bags. We'll see if we can find uh, other airlines that are also retiring their seats where the materials can are still in usable condition, obviously. And then there's other materials like Econil that are um, based out of Europe, out of Italy. It's a certified material. It could be traced back. Uh, that's made out of fishnets, carpet fiber waste, as well as other waste products. They advertise that it can be infinitely regenerated without the use of new resources. So it's... Um, you know, when we look back at the original three R's, the uh, recycling symbol, mm -hmm. they, they really stand for reduce, reuse, recycle. So the idea with what we're doing is in terms of minimalism, slow fashion is really reduce the number of pieces that we need for our everyday lifestyles. And then reuse what's already out there. That would be the ideal situation is really reusing what already exists, which inevitably does help clean up the planet, whether it's pulling out discarded fishnets from the ocean, which uh, is very harmful to marine life, um, or using belt webbing that just sits literally, as you said, in stockpiles and scrapyards that will not really biodegrade. Um, it's looking at this from a 360 point of view to see what can we do to not only have positive impact, but to actually clean up, 
I guess, the mess that's been made over the last uh, X number of decades. So you brought up the point of certification, and I think it's an important thing to explain to to our audience. Um, you know, everybody thinks they're using recycled or marketing that they're using recycled materials. I'm going to guess that along the way, not everything's always recycled and it can be for some people, a marketing gimmick, uh, same as the old, you know, growing and organic. So what is, when you're talking certification, what's the process and what is it that you're looking for that uh, makes sure that in your mind that you're doing the right thing with the products? Um, Yeah. In terms of certifications, we really want to work with materials that, only are certified because it ties into our value system of being transparent, of really giving as much information, uh, well, giving all the information on where every single component of every item that we produce is made. So we have certifications on our website, everything from USDA for the cactus leather we use that's grown in North America to REACH and uh, OEKO for certifications for Echinil, which is a material we use out of Italy. But it is very important, you know, sustainability, vegan, a lot of these things have become popular marketing terms, buzzwords. So I think along with promoting these movements, which are great, it's very important to be able to just tell the end consumer that why they're sustainable, why they're vegan, where is everything coming from, how is it made, um, and how long is it gonna last, and what's gonna be done at the end of the product life cycle, which is also, quite important in terms of sustainability and going against fast fashion. So you brought, you bring up the, the concept of essentially supply chain, right? You're, you're talking here about certification, knowing where the products come from. How do you decide on your supply chain? How do you decide who you're going to use in the exercise? Do you have a, a vetting program? Are you looking for people with similar morals and, and, and approaches? How do you, how do you decide on who you're going to work with? In terms of production, everything is produced locally in Canada. Um, So we actually get to go and work with them on a regular basis. They're all local. Um, And obviously that's to ensure being close to the process and of course, fair and equitable labor standards. In terms of materials, we ask a lot of questions. Uh, What type of certifications do they have? Do they have a sustainability report, which a lot of them do uh, that they release at the end of the year. So it's asking as many questions as possible that we want to be comfortable that when our community, our consumer asks us these questions, we have the answers because we've already asked our uh, partners and our supply chains the same questions. So you're making limited pieces. Uh, you've got a very specific market. How do you market? How do you get the, the word out there? Uh, and who's your target? I mean, we're a, uh, we're a startup, so it's... Um, everything at our disposable in terms of marketing, whether it's our website, um, PR, which is always great, always helps influencers within our community that are happy to show the products that we're creating and promote the, um, the ethos behind those pieces. And in terms of community, it's, um, I look at it more from a psychographist point of view in terms of values, it's anybody that really cares about the consequences of the piece that they're wearing or carrying versus looking at it strictly from a fashion point of view or a trend point of view. And I would like to say that community is growing more and more every day, which is super exciting. More and more people are asking questions about um, where 
the pieces they purchase are made, what type of materials are used, what type of components are used. I would also like to think that our community is interested in having a clean, minimalist aesthetic that is um, everlasting, but at the same time is interesting in the sense that the beauty really comes out in the, the details and the attention to detail. Are you selling strictly online at this point uh, to retail or to individuals, I should say, at a retail level, or are you selling to retail stores? We do also sell to retail stores. Uh, for example, in Quebec, we have partners such as uh, Brown Shoes, Simons, uh, Altruist, Bubbles, um, to name a few, uh, Sankim Avenue, um, Cheka in Quebec City. So there, there's a bunch of different uh, partners that also believe in what we're doing. And we also have some dropship partners, uh, for example, Immaculate Vegan in the UK, um, Altruist again. So it's, um, yeah, we're building our retail network as well. But you're, you're also selling online. You're selling to retail customers online. Yes, absolutely. We also Perfect. have our own website, 457NU, where we uh, sell to our uh, end consumers as well. Inder Betty, 457 and you. So uh, hang on, please. We'll have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a moment. And uh, talking about um, online business, Mike, and uh, shipping all across the world, import, export, there's a lot of complicated rules. And certainly when you're selling online, I mean, if you're selling to the States or doing business with the States, there's a, there's a different rule in every state, right? So it can get complicated. Yeah, it's one of those things that ultimately, at the end of the day, people seem to forget about. It's it's kind of an afterthought in many cases, and uh, that's usually where uh, you know, without the proper planning, we have to bring Ernie in to try and clean up everybody's mess on on the sales tax side. And and you know, Andrew, you were talking about uh, you know selling retail. I mean, the complexities of retail are you know are kind of astronomical to most people. But I think Ernie to 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 kick this off. I mean, Andrew was talking about importing. He was talking about bringing in from different countries. He was talking about picking up in scrap heaps. Uh, what are some of the things that need to be watched uh, watch for on the sales tax side? Well, when, when we're importing stuff from outside of Canada, we have to watch our duties that we're paying and we have to pay duty on the uh, uh, on the amount that we imported at, plus uh, we're paying GST on top of that duty. Uh, some clients import stuff from outside of the country and they forget that they pay GST upon that importation and all of a sudden are forgetting to claim a credit of 5% of, uh, of what they bring into the country from either US, Mexico, or worldwide, doesn't matter. You're acting as importer of record. You're bringing the stuff into the country and uh, the customs broker will send you a bill and it'll they'll charge you the GST, which you will claim back. So now I'm moving product. I've got it into the country. I'm going to start using, as, as Inder mentioned, their process is, is purely uh, local uh, in order to, con you know, to control, watch, and to maintain fair standards. Some of the implications on value added to sales tax components that are then ultimately sold elsewhere. So we're, we're using local people. We're using local people to, 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 to do some, some work. So we're paying them GST. Chances are they're independents. We have to just be careful uh, that we're paying registrants the GST and QST in Quebec and that we get their appropriate GST, QST numbers and we can validate those GST, QST numbers online to make sure that everything is bona fide. Over and above, if we're doing clothing, 
um, and manufacturing clothing in one way, shape, or form or another. There's a special form that has to be filed with Quebec on a monthly basis, regardless of whether you are a, a monthly filer for GST, QST, a quarterly filer, or an annual filer. There's a monthly form that you, when you use subcontractors in the garment industry, that you have to prepare on a monthly basis. We could be using labor from outside of the, uh, of the province. So we have to just be careful what uh, what's going on uh, with, with respect to, you know, are we paying the correct amount of, of sales taxes? Are we not paying sales taxes? If we're not, why not? If we are, are they the correct amount? And do we have all the supporting documents required that in the event that we go through an audit with the MRQ uh, that we pass muster? So who's the onus on to make sure that the red, the uh, the supplier is registered for GST and QSD? If I'm outsourcing manufactured product, is it my onus to make sure that my supplier is registered for GST or QSD, or is it the supplier himself that has that has to prove to us that he is? It, the onus is on you. At the end of the day, you're, you're you're the one who's claiming that credit back. Consequently, you have to make sure that that invoice has the GST number and the QST number of the supplier that you're using. You have to validate that, take that validation, print that validation somehow, some way, whether uh, whether virtually or on paper, keep it in the file somewhere. So in the event that somebody comes in uh, from the Minister of Revenue and says, OK, this fellow is not registered, then you say, well, he was registered on this day. And we go through this on a, 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 a with every new supplier introduction. Plus, we we validate this every six months. So that should be good enough at the end of the day to prove that, hey, we, we've done our due diligence with respect to, to making sure that these suppliers are in fact bonafide and registered for GST, QST. And at that point in time, the government should really leave you alone. So we're working our way through the process. Let's take let's take the end. The end. So now in Ender's case, he's selling to uh, retail stores in Canada. He's also selling to retail stores in other countries and he's selling retail himself online. Um, where, what are the implications here on a, on a sales tax uh, from either where they're delivered, where they're shipped from, where the online sales happens? Who's, who's responsible at the end of the day? Because it always seems like every time somebody calls or asks a question, somebody's pointing the finger at somebody else. Well, exactly. Uh, we just have to make sure to pick the finger is not pointing back at us. So we have to we have to do the best thing that we can do to control the situation. So for any sales within uh, Canada, if they're retail sales, i.e. sales to an end user, then we have to charge GST and possibly HST, depending on the destination of the product. There are certain provinces in Canada that have a provincial sales tax. That would be Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and British Columbia. Because we're in Canada we, and we're selling retail online, we probably should be registered for those taxes as well. So we just have to uh, charge those taxes, remit those taxes on the, in, in the proper time frame, and we're okay from that sense. Now, if we're also selling to retailers online, we still have to charge them GST. We still have to charge them HST, but when it comes to that provincial sales tax for those three provinces that I mentioned, they have to give you purchase exemption certificates. So at the end of the day, we don't charge them that provincial sales tax because they're going to be reselling that, that product in their store. So my U.S. Uh, retailer has a shipping uh, outlet in Canada um, and decides he's going to pick up the goods at my warehouse, but their goods are going to be shipped to the U.S. Am I charging GST? Am I not charging GST? Uh, how, do, how do I determine? 
your client won't necessarily like the answer at the end of the day, because if they're picking up the merchandise in Canada, you're charging GST because you have no proof of where those goods went out. He can give you all kinds of proof with his trucks that he shipped them outside of the country. You want the, the best proof possible? Say, oh, you want these goods for Pennsylvania? No problem. We will put them on a truck. We will put them, we'll send them by FedEx, send them by what dog sled, whatever it may be. As long as you can prove that those goods went out of the country, you controlled the shipment that was going outside of the country. You can bill your customer for the, uh, for, for, for the shipping, but you have to control it. So you and don't again, charge GST at that point in time. And again, if those goods were bundled, not breaking a bundle makes it a lot easier to prove that oh, yeah. they were shipped outside of the Oh, country. yeah. Ernie for a tax partner at FL. Thanks so much, Ernie. You're welcome. My pleasure. And now we turn to Inder Bedi, founder of 457 and you, and ask him for his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur, sir. If I could put one word out there, it's believe. It uh, As an entrepreneur, whether it's a fashion brand, any other type of brand or business, I uh, believing in what you do and just fighting through all the hurdles and obstacles that come along the way um, goes a long way. If you're an entrepreneur, you're thinking of doing something that hasn't been done before. You're thinking of putting your own spin, your own take on it. So you're really either reinventing the wheel or modifying it a bit. Either way, there's going to be people that will tell you that it either doesn't make sense because status quo is always easy. It's the way things are running. And you really have to, based on your um, intuition, market study, and just sheer gut, once you have an idea that you think has legs, you really got to believe in it, put together the right team, and just go for it. I, um, When I was doing my, my bachelor's, I... I wanted to go to law school and I was also considering doing a master's in science and I actually got together with one of my profs. We uh, developed a friendship uh, while I was completing my studies. And I told him that, you know, I'm thinking of continuing my schooling, but at the same time, I have this business idea, this vegan brand that could be interesting and I'm thinking of pursuing it. And he basically told me, if you're thinking of starting any type of business, you better get the hell out of school as soon as you can. And don't think of doing a master's and then starting the business after because you're going to have a thousand reasons why this business will fail and not many why it can actually succeed. And as we know, um, the majority of businesses that start up don't succeed. And being an entrepreneur is taking those life lessons and really looking them as learning experiences and just you keep moving forward. It, um, I like to think there's a certain spirituality that's involved in the sense that if this idea comes in your head and you really believe in your heart, you can make it work. You have to really put everything behind it and just keep pushing through in one way or another, something positive is going to come out of it. But um, uh, yeah. Excellent. Mike, final thoughts. No, I, again, I, I, you know, the, the, I think the, the belief comment is, uh, you know, falls in line with the passion comment that, that we use often. I think you can't have one without the other. You can't get up every day if you don't believe in what you're doing. Uh, you know, and again, this is a very positive uh, spin on the Montreal uh, local market of new entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, uh, existing entrepreneurs moving into sustainability in different environments with new technology. So it's, it, it, it's really invigorating to, to see this kind of excitement going on. Yeah, and, and, and moving into new technologies in a thorough way, just exploring all kinds of different new materials and going in all different directions. It's really inspiring. Inderbedi, 457 New, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
And don't forget, you can listen to 13 plus years of inspiring entrepreneur profiles at todaysentrepreneur.org. And you can also uh, follow uh, us on uh, on all the podcast platforms. Subscribe on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and more. We'll see you back here in a couple weeks. Good talk.